Welcome to Scary Basement. Each week, me and my friend Mikey are drawn inexplicably and supernaturally to this basement, wherein lurks every scary thing that has ever been, including a demonic octopus that's on fire, a tidal wave of spiders with each one wearing an evil hat, a cursed water bottle that can never be filled, and the simulation theory written on paper. So you can ponder if you're even <laughs> real. Is any of this real? Anyway, the only thing I know is I'm Roxy Polk. And I'm confident I'm Mikey McCaller. <laughs> Good. Glad I was worried. Let's start out, Mikey, as we always do with the scariest things that happened to us this week. So what went down in your life outside of the scary basement that spooked you to your bones? Roxy, this week I witnessed the most evil bird in history. The most evil bird? I went to the San Diego Zoo mm-hmm. and I saw a bird. That was look, it looked like some sort of, uh, it was like turkey sized, but like looked like a crow, like a turkey sized crow. And it had oh. a giant red tumor under its chin. Tumor? Was like it a, thick or was it just part of how the normal no, bird No, that was just like, that was just part of it. That was just oh. how that bird was. And it okay. looked like a, a, a Resident Evil tyrant with like its big beating heart <laughs> on the outside. And um, that's its weak spot. I saw it. Roxy, in no less uh-huh. than three different encampments at the zoo. What? And the worst part was, we looked at all the little didactic plaques outside of the exhibits. It was not supposed to be in any of them. Oh my god, phantom haunted evil bird. <laughs> I'll send you a picture of the bird. Um, yeah, actually, Mikey, you sent me a picture of this bird. Let me bring it up to look at this thing again. Because I think like, just out of the blue, you sent me a photo of this. <laughs> and you were the like the worst this... bird i ever saw yeah this is the most evil bird yeah it's like black and red and like the red points accentuate its eyes and like mm-hmm. yeah it just looks like a weird sack under its beak and like Ugh. around its cheeks or something Terrifying. it also looks like it's walking towards you in this photo mikey so i have to say you might have narrowly escaped with your life from this thing oh it's after me to be sure <laughs> Look out the window quick. (laughs) There aren't any plaques outside your house, are there? Roxy, what was scaring you this week? Uh, So the scariest thing that happened to me this week was seeing yet another Netflix show get canceled. That is scary. So it was the show 1899, Mm. which has like kind of sci-fi bent to it, although it appears like a period drama at first. Mm-hmm. I love sci-fi stuff, and it does a lot of crazy, like, mind-bending things later that are very interesting. But, like, the most thing, the thing I was interested the most about, because, of course, they didn't, they left a lot of unanswered questions, which was annoying. But <laughs> when they set up stuff that we were going to get into in season two, I was like, okay, that seems really cool. I'm excited for that. Mm-hmm. And apparently it got canceled, so I'll never know. No one will ever know, I guess, Haunted. unless it gets picked up by someone else. And it's just one of many shows that keeps getting canned before it has a chance to, like, gain an audience and do more with its premise which is just it's such a shame and it feels so short-sighted and stupid and i'm tired of it happening mikey i'm just tired i'm tired too roxy i'm upset that it happened those poor characters are just stuck in limbo forever yeah they're they're never gonna get resolution because their god is no longer being employed to provide them with resolution (laughs) what's gonna happen yeah just just nothing that's that's it that's (laughs) That's how they all end up, just all in limbo. Speaking of never truly getting resolution, I don't know that we're ever going to get out of this scary basement because we are trapped in here with our tormentor, 
the demon bot and speak of the demon robot devil. <laughs> there he is. Mikey and Roxy, this week you were assigned the 1997 anime horror Perfect Blue. Did you watch the film, or are your souls forfeit? Roxy, believe it or not, I did watch an anime. Hell yeah, I watched Perfect Blue as well. Good, then you may keep your souls. For now. Alright, so Mikey, the movie we watched this week was Perfect Blue, an animated movie by Satoshi Kon from 1997. Uh, so how about for everybody listening up at the basement door, we give them a plot summary. I would love to. All right. <laughs> I would what? not love to. We we haven't talked about this a, a ton on the podcast before. Oh. I am famously not an anime guy. I do not yeah. get it. And so this I movie just need, is I so just need everyone to know that like this is a big deal for me. This is like a thing I'm doing for you. So be grateful to me for being mm, a good okay. person. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you for inconveniencing yourself at my request, Mikey. <laughs> well, at the request of the demon bot who did, again, threaten to steal my soul. It's the only way I could watch anime. And Roxy, that was the difference between all your pitches over all the years we've known each other. You had, it to, had take to be endorsed my soul. by Yeah. Otherwise, I'm too busy. I can't try One Piece. Uh, <laughs> I mean, gonna... I would never suggest anyone try One Piece. There is... 800 episodes or something it's okay, good but jesus nobody has time for that just be proud of me for knowing the name of an anime <laughs> yeah okay. i mean good job <laughs> plot summary here we are all right mima is a member of the pop idol group called cham with an exclamation point mm-hmm. we're at their last concert together ruffians in the concert crowd try to disrupt it and a creepy fan steps in to try and stop them but it doesn't do anything. In fact, it only makes things worse. Until Mima herself has to talk loudly over the microphone to calm everyone down so that she can have one final song to say goodbye to her group before she retires from being a pop idol to become an actress. Mima's first role is a single-lined character, and as she reads her line, her male manager opens a letter intended for Mima that blows up in his face, causing damage to both his hands and his face. This is where the stalking from the creepy fan gets worse, as the stalker is upset about Mima changing from her clean-cut, pure, pop-idol image. Mima is sent a strange letter about an internet site called Mima's Room, which contains extremely specific details about her th- both her public life and her private life, written from her own perspective. But it should be said, Mima did not write this blog. In fact, she can't even really understand the internet without help from her manager, Rumi. So who is writing this webpage and who is stalking her? It's very obvious that the rat face looking dude who goes by Mimania online, who keeps popping up on the periphery of her life, is this very stalker. The dude also apparently used his car to run over one of the ruffians causing a scene at Mima's final concert. He lets Mima know this by cutting up an article about it and placing it in the elevator she's getting onto and then leering at her from a distance knowingly. Mima's bit part on the television detective drama Double Blind gets expanded, which at first seems great. But unfortunately, the pervy writer decides to write a gang rape scene to be her character's motivation to snap. Rumi, her female manager, hates it and tries to back up Mima so she isn't forced into it. Unfortunately, Mima just accepts the role and scene as necessary for her advancement. The filming of this scene is extremely traumatic, causing Rumi to leave in tears, the male manager to feel some kind of guilt, and when Mima gets home and sees her dead fish, she snaps, destroying her room and crying, yelling that of course she didn't want to do it, but felt that she could not say no. 
As the show's filming progresses, Mima begins to see a dreamlike reflection of herself in her pop idol outfit, saying that she's the real Mima, and that the one in the real world is a dirty woman who isn't the real Mima. The stress of filming double-blind, her lingering regret from leaving Cham, the pressure from being stalked, and her obsessive habit of checking the Mima's room site takes its toll, and she begins to find it hard to distinguish real life from her acting life. The writer from the show Double Blind is killed in a parking lot garage after being lured into the elevator with a portable stereo playing a cham music CD. Mima is then booked into a photo shoot by her male agent, and the photographer is known for forcing female subjects to take off all their clothes and be leered at. Mima breaks even further when this photographer does indeed live up to his expectations, and he and Mima's male agent basically coerce her into posing completely nude in suggestive poses. The fan sentiment and outsider perspective has been shown by various fans going to the Cham concerts and monitoring Mima's career as it's changing. They comment on how after this photo shoot, the squeaky clean image of an idol being pure, unattainable, and dedicated to nothing but her fans is completely gone for Mima now. She can no longer go back to being a pop idol and must continue acting, even if it's breaking her. As Mima's hallucinations of the other Mima increase, she is losing time as her work and life blur together. The pervy photographer is then murdered by someone pretending to be a pizza delivery person. And as they stab the photographer, their hat flies off, and we see that it is Mima doing the stabbing in between flashes from the photo shoot. And various symbols, like a no theater mask. However, is it really her? Mima finds evidence in her room from the murderer, but has no memory of it, and public opinion sees her as a possible suspect. Mima finishes shooting the TV show Double Blind, where her character was the killer, after her mind shattered and she assumed the identity of her sister. The scene seems to reflect Mima's real life, as she is still losing time and is unsure of what is real anymore. The male manager tells Rumi that the next book show for Mima has some sketchy scenes, and Rumi can do nothing but smile politely. As Mima leaves the station that night, she is attacked by the stalker who has received email instructions to kill her, the imposter Mima. The stalker, Mimania, attempts to rape and kill Mima, but she fights back and hits him in the head with a hammer, knocking him unconscious. She runs away and is found by Rumi, who comforts her, and as Mima falls asleep, she hears Rumi say she is taking her to Mima's room. It's here that Mima puts everything together. She's in a copy of her own room. Rumi has been obsessed with Mima to the point that she recreated her room with the original Cham poster and has been the one writing the Mima's Room blog. Rumi manipulated Mimania to do her bidding and also carried out the murders herself while scapegoating the stalker to take the fall. She's even killed the male manager who was making Mima take part she didn't want and kicked off her entire shift from being a pop idol to acting. Rumi herself suffers from disassociative identity disorder and believes herself to be the real Mima, the pure Mima, and that she doesn't need an imposter like her, enacting the final part of her plan, which is killing Mima herself. Rumi saw in Mima an outlet for her own failed idol career, and when Mima broke away from that, it shattered her image and caused her to develop the Mima personality to a homicidal degree. Rumi, now dressed as Mima, chases the actual Mima through the rainy city across rooftops and heavily injures her. However, when Rumi's wig is ripped off, in her panic to get it back, she stabs herself on a huge piece of broken glass. Rumi then wanders into the street and sees the oncoming headlights as stage lights and a welcoming crowd. It's a cool ending. At the last minute, Mima... Yeah. (laughs) At the last minute, Mima saves Rumi from being hit by the truck and the two of them are rushed to the hospital. 
Sometime later, Mima is now more famous and visits Rumi while in disguise at the mental institution. We see that Rumi is stuck in her Mima persona and likely will be for some time, if not for the rest of her life. As Mima leaves the hospital, a pair of nurses gossip that that can't be the real Mima, right? The real Mima is too famous to be here now. Mima gets in her car, lowers her sunglasses, and says, I'll see you at the movie. No, she says, (laughs) I'm the real Mima. And then a pop song plays. And Roxy, that's perfect blue. That is perfect blue. (laughs) I, I think Mima hates pop idoldom and did want to be an actress. I and think I think she, she was okay with everything that was happening, and it was only the corruption of Rumi uh, making her think she didn't. Okay, so we're starting off with, uh, you think Mima's motivation is that she wanted to do all of it? Or yeah, just that I, she I wanted feel, to be an actress no matter the cost, I guess? She Well, I specifically remember the first, <laughs> God, the first rape scene. Um, yeah. Everybody was like, are you sure you want to do this? And even the male manager was like, we can probably talk to him. We can get it out, but we shouldn't. It's a good thing. And then she's just like very contently just like, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. Like, we'll do my best. Like, I like the idea of her saying like, I'm in control of myself. I can do this. I can take on this acting challenge and it's going to suck, but I'm going to do it. And because I'm dedicated to it. And then, like, I think what was kind of tricky about this movie is navigating, like, what's true and what's false, which is sort of the mm-hmm. vibe they you want that character to have. But it did seem like she was, like, on board with all of it, and it was only the herself in the mere reflection, the, like, reflection version of her that was telling her she didn't like doing that stuff, which we later found out to be represented by the manager Rumi who ended up being the true villain of the of the piece uh yeah I think she was on board with all the stuff that was happening and by the end she's like okay I finally come to grips with myself I would disagree I think because her being a rookie in this position where she is balanced on a knife's edge where she can't go back to being a pop idol basically she has to make this work uh Mm -hmm. she can't say no if something is making her so uncomfortable she doesn't want to do it she has to power through it even if she hates it. Especially, I think, as evidenced by the fact that she breaks down later and literally says, of course I don't want to do it. I felt like I couldn't say no. Like, I didn't well, but have wasn't, a choice. wasn't that, didn't her reflection tell her that? I could she be getting that She did at wrong. some point, but that's like when she's crying, when she destroys her room, throwing everything around and breaks down crying. Mm. It's kind of like she is putting on that artifice and getting as far as she can. And then when she goes to feed her fish... They've died because she's been so distracted or hasn't had time to do it um, that she just loses it. That's like the final straw. And she's just like, Mm -hmm. I was holding it together. Then I saw this and I can't do it anymore. So she just kind of lets out her real feelings there. And then we see the ghostly like other Mima, who I feel like is a reflection of her feelings and her thoughts, you know, saying like, yeah, you're a dirty woman. You can't be a pop idol anymore. Like you're no longer pure because of this. I definitely read every time we saw that ghostly reflection of the idol career as it being the influence of Rumi and the uh, uh, parental structure telling her, like, you don't get to not be a pop idol. Because I think, I mean, this is kind of like, it feels like what this movie is about. It's like the horror, the, the very frightening thing at the end of this movie is seeing this adult woman forcing herself, like, putting her body into this pop idol outfit Mm -hmm. and it's like grotesque and it's supposed to be grotesque because like the act of growing up 
of moving beyond this pop idol stage and moving beyond this childhood stage is about forcing yourself into adulthood. And the villain here is like, no, I could never handle being forced out of this. And I'm going to, I'm not going to let you be forced out of it. And if you can't understand it, then I'll make, I'll just take it myself. And it's like really scary. (laughs) It's one of the coolest and scariest images of this movie. Um, So I I don't know. It's, it's tough with movies like this, where again, we were just talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula, which has no narrative coherence. Like, mm-hmm. I do want a an actual answer. Like, I do want to know. But yeah. it didn't, it, I read it as the manager was the the reflection she kept seeing in the mirror. So I think they're, they're I believe, is some of that and not others. Because I think it is a reflection of her dealing with the emotions of doing this change. Because, like, the reason why she decided to do acting in the first place was because her management team was like, we need more money. We don't make money with her as a pop idol. We want to try her being an actress. Mm-hmm. And so, like, she event- she initially left her hometown, like, in the country, because you hear her mom call and she's got, like, an accent. She came to Tokyo to mm-hmm. be a pop idol because she liked singing. And now she's doing this other thing, which is tangential, and she could enjoy it just as much. But, like, that wasn't her initial goal. I guess. Um, So it was only at the behest of her management team and specifically this male manager that she decided to try it. I guess. And I mean, she's good and has the potential to it. And you could say that he is able to see that in her. Um, And she does ultimately rise to the occasion. But like not every rookie actress has to go through those sorts of scenes and that amount of like uncomfortability and the crazy stalking and everything else going on with her. You know, like that's probably not normal in terms of how you would transition from one career to another when it comes to stuff. But I think that's the metaphor. Like, and and this is what's tough about for me specifically having not watched a ton of anime and kind of not hating it. It's like, you kind of can't tell what's being sent through performance, but my read of her performance the entire time when her mom was like, but singing was the thing you like, like I thought she hated singing. And I think, I think it's pretty clear well, that this movie is anti, like, being a pop so idol forever. I, yeah, I will say that she she does make a comment that it was suffocating her. So, like, she might not have made that decision initially or that choice, but then her management team said it, and she was like, okay, I'll jump on it. And I think it's also just a comment on how pop idols in Japan, they... I don't know how much you've heard about kind of how it's managed over there. I I know some of mm-hmm. the wrestlers that you watch have had some like mm-hmm. crossover with that. Shouts to uh, Maki Ito, uh, yeah. who has been in AEW. I don't know if she's in anywhere else, but yeah. So it's this very fucked up thing where they're supposed to be seen as like these pure objects from afar. They're not allowed to date. It's literally in their contracts. Mm-hmm. They are not allowed to date. Because they have to look as, like, attainable but distant to fans. Um, mm-hmm. And this is only for the pe- female pop idols. It's like this. Because there was this mm-hmm. case where a female pop idol was discovered dating a male pop idol who worked at the same agency. She was just completely run into the mud. She shaved her head and gave a tearful apology. And it still wasn't enough for these assholes. And the mm-hmm. dude just didn't have to do anything. He didn't even get a slap on the wrist, I don't think. And after she did all of that, she still got fired and couldn't do it anymore. Just for something as simple as dating someone. Yeah. So, I mean, this is in the 90s. It's going to be exactly the same, if not worse, probably, Mm -hmm. because there wasn't as much internet to disseminate information. 
so there's such pressure on like purity and like this kind of purity culture thing. So mm-hmm. for them to have her turn around and then do these sorts of scenes, which are so opposite to it as well, I feel like it is also just like a scathing kind of like comment about these two industries and how they treat the people at the center of them just as objects, you know, mm. like them forcing these ideas on Mima, whether it's like, oh, it's this idol that I love and is always going to be this specific way for me, the audience, me, the the fan. You know? I, I, again, have, <laughs> am, <laughs> this is why we probably shouldn't do anime. I have no idea what is actually happening in this movie because I 100% read it. Like I didn't read any critique of the acting portion of it. I got a ton of critique of the pop idol portion. I think it's more just like the the people in charge of it, the people who set the wheels in motion to a degree, I guess. Because like we have I'll, the slimy I'll writer, you, we've got the slimy photographer. I feel like those are making a comment about how like men in positions of power treat women who they're able to abuse, which essentially happens. I guess I, I didn't read those as abuses. I read okay. those as, I read that as like, opposite her pop idol form. But like if uh-huh. this movie, which I would s- suspect is about... The act of growing up, the act of going from childhood where you are viewed as pure and unattainable and you don't date to being mm-hmm. a, an adult who is comfortable and owns their sexuality and is themselves. And the reaction of uh, the the uh, the forces that want to keep you as a child. Mm-hmm. I read all of that as her like taking agency and taking control and all of the and rightly she was devastated by like. The responses, but like yeah. I saw that as critical of the responses and less of the industry. Uh, I think that's also to true me too. Like, I agree with that as well. With I, the I, I remember really being like excited about the way she was. Not about, I, I want to be clear. I was not excited about the concept of a rape scene happening. I was excited <laughs> by her response to the rape scene when she was just like, like her management is like having an argument about it. But they're mm-hmm. kind of saying like, and I, it, I don't remember if the male agent said he would support her or not. But she has this like really cool, like calm resolve. She's like, hey, I'll just do it. I'll just go do it. I'll do it. It'll be hard. I'm going to try my best. And I was just like, fuck yeah, dude, you fucking own yourself. Like being mm-hmm. an actor sucks. You have to do shitty things sometimes. You have to do uncomfortable things. But like you fucking have a craft and you go work at it and you hone it. And I was like, fuck yeah, dude. That was like when I was most on her side. And okay. I was like, yeah, go do a fucking rape scene. Own your shit, dude. It was cool. But I don't know. I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I agree with that I don't know how performances work in anime. I don't know what we're talking about. No, it does work. I don't think you have to worry about that. I think with Satoshi Kon's films, it it operates on like any other logic you would find in any other movie. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's as as confusing as Ringu would be, I guess, in that regard, uh, because it's a foreign film. I just mean specifically the performances are tricky. Like if mm-hmm. there is th- the thing that specifically bothers me about anime is it's like my brain doesn't take in the performances. Like they feel very explainy. Okay. Um, and so I don't know if I'm reading that as like them being matter of fact, or if that's their version of signaling through a performance that this character actually is really uncomfortable and only feels like they have no choice to do it. So yeah, I don't know. I guess that it's was where I read like, it. And again, that was what I was like, that, that's like kind of the moment the movie shifted for me. I was like, okay. Cause I wrote down very early on. It's like, does she want to be a singer or not? Like what's going on here? And that was the moment I was like, oh, she doesn't. She knows what it entails. She's ready to move on past it. And she's good. So that was like, 
a question answered for me. Yeah, and I think on a very simplistic level, like you said, she is in a transition between stages in her career, and they can kind of be emblematic of stages of your life. And so anytime mm-hmm. you're going to do that, there's going to be some hesitation or some thinking about, mm-hmm. well, it was easier back when I was doing this other thing, uh, as opposed to this new hard thing. And and blowback from outside forces, like yeah. the people who want you to stay a child, <laughs> like yeah. are angry and upset at you. Yeah. So I think it's, it's kind of like a- anybody would have that push and pull. pull. It'd be great to say that, yeah, I can 110% be very confident and assured of every choice I make about my mm-hmm. life. But you're always going to be thinking back and calculating and stuff. And especially when she's seeing those reactions to people who are previously fans or people who are not taking her seriously because pop idols in a more serious career. Pop idols are not seen as serious as actors. So her transitioning Mm -hmm. to that, these actor colleagues who are now her colleagues are maybe not going to look as favorably upon her. We don't really see any of that. All of the other co-stars she has are perfectly fine with her. We don't see anything like that. But it's more of like, yeah, the fan perception kind of pushing in on her. And then the management who her male manager does not have her best interest at heart, but also neither does Rumi. Like neither, both mm-hmm. of them are trying to get whatever they want to get out of her. Right. And so eventually at the end, she breaks three breaks free of both of them and feels very like mm-hmm. self-assured. She's got a different hairstyle. So she's not the, the last vestige of her pop idol aesthetics, I think, are gone with mm-hmm. that kind of symbolism there. And just the confidence with which she carries herself and then says, I'm Mima, as she takes down her sunglasses <laughs> and, like, upbeat pop music plays. Uh, it seems like it. she came into her own after a bunch of messy, growing, yes. learning, and horrible experiences mm-hmm. and came out the other side, which I think is a very positive way to look at it. And I'm glad we got a positive ending from it. Yeah, it is a cool ending. Like, it is, it is her, like... I think I like that dis- depiction of the two agents as like both sitting on the opposing side. Like Rumi is like, stay a child so much that if you don't stay a child, I will take the role because it's so important. Somebody is a child. Mm-hmm. And then the male agent is like, well, what if you just showed your tits all the time? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, both of them are kind of wrong. And you're right. She does kind of break free from it yeah. by the end of it. And even uh, like- and find something that fits for her, even though we yeah. don't really get to see that, do we? We don't really get to see exactly what her new career looks like. Yeah, we don't get to see what it is. But the fact that, like, the way the nurses are reacting to her, Mm. that even they know what she looks like, makes it seem like, yeah, she did get her big break. She's more mainstream. She's achieved the ability to make her own decisions instead of, like, her agents making her decisions for her. So it feels like she has transcended in that way, even though we Mm -hmm. don't see specifically what she's doing, which I think is pretty cool. I will say it, it, it does feel like... (laughs) <laughs> the movie that's why it feels like such a harsh critique of the pop idol syndrome <laughs> like the f- like yeah just obsessive fans in general like we see that in plenty Ru- of Rumi other as the of killer media uh-huh <laughs> Rumi as the killer is such a cool twist that like i buy for whatever reason yeah like, i totally was into it well, they mention it very offhandedly that it is easy to miss, but Rumi used to be a pop idol. She's like a yes. failed pop idol who ended up moving into management. So mm. she is like very obviously living vicariously through Mima, but doing like a good job at disguising that's what she's doing until mm. she can't anymore. <laughs> right. Because she has the outlet of the Mima's Room website to mm. like channel that kind of desire until like she gets past her breaking point and it's just mm-hmm. like, 
well, time to replace you and kill you because I'm the better you. <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess for me that's why like I saw less critique of the like the uh the show and the photographer like the adulthood version of things she was doing because at the clearest voice of like no we need to protect her she shouldn't be taking nude photos ends up being a monster killer so it's like it does kind of uh, mirror this experience of like again growing up and coming into your own and being like who actually has my best interest in heart i think throughout the movie you're like oh she's looking out for her and she's clearly the voice of like maybe she should go back to singing maybe singing does make sense but then when we see like if we game that out what does going back to singing look like it turns you into a monster uh it's like oh yeah singing had to be destroyed and we should probably not allow pop idols anymore we there also really are a uh, disney channel original stars yeah like hannah montana and britney spears feel like very clear examples of this kind of similar situation where they're child stars who are revered a certain way and then trying to make that transition to be like i'm an adult i want to do other things now can break all kinds of different ways as we saw Mm -hmm. with like (laughs) those two in particular as examples yeah and again, it's because you have all these people with different agendas and different things to gain by using these kids as tools, you know, for making mm-hmm. money or selling products to make money, whatever. And so I think, yeah, it is about independence in that way as well, which I think is cool. Yeah. Also, like Satoshi Khan himself as a director, I you haven't seen any of his other movies. I I know I'm always quick to be like, hey, you watch Spirited Away. What about some other Miyazaki? Uh-huh. <laughs> but he is someone who made several very good movies and died way too young. He is unfortunately passed on now. Mm. And he's like a very unique voice in anime movie directing in general. Like when Perfect Blue came out, psychological thrillers, horror thrillers were not popular at the time. Mm. And I think he got the job directing it because somebody else fell out or something. So it was just kind of like a oh perfect situation where he ended up getting it. Uh, and transforming mm-hmm. it into what it is now. And the soundtrack, too, I don't know who the sound designer is, but, like, the warbly distorted sound, like, when the ghost pop idol version of her shows up, mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of sticks with you. It's, like, haunting, like I said before, kind of warbly. It's uh, it's a very unique track, which I appreciate. Yeah. No, it's, it's clearly, like, I am always a... a somebody who prefers a movie taking big swings that like has an identity that has a goal. And this movie like puts you in the mindset of a young performer who is doing their best to get a grip on reality because we specifically do not have a grip on reality throughout this entire movie. Yes. The way a lot of these scenes in the middle, like it's definitely, I did not remember quite how chaotic and confusing things are, which again Mm -hmm. is the point, but at the same time, you know, it lends to a lot of analysis later when you have to be like, did that really happen? What part of that was real? <laughs> what wasn't? There's a series of events where she will, we the viewer will be shown something horrible happening and then Mima will wake up and there will be the same news reporter talking about a thing. And mm-hmm. then Rumi is there with like tea and cake. And I remember at one point thinking like, did she drug her? Is that why part mm-hmm. of this is happening? Or is it just all her mental break? Cause it like repeats that a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And you've only got Rumi saying, like, oh, I was here yesterday, don't you remember? And then other things, like, we know Rumi was the one who stabbed the photographer, but when we, the viewer, see that 
murder happening, we're seeing Mima stabbing her mm-hmm. because it's like Rumi's projection of Mima as herself, which is like that that benefit is just to confuse us, I guess, at that point. We're not right. sure. <laughs> like it doesn't serve the characters participating in this story in a particular way to be mm-hmm. like well, now we're inhabiting Rumi, and since she sees herself like this, that's why this is happening. Like, we don't understand that's why that's happening, and maybe that's what it's supposed to be. It, it does kind of function in dream logic, where it doesn't yeah. make tangible sense, but, like, in a dream, how, like, when somebody is talking to you and their face shifts and all of a sudden they're your aunt. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's gibberish, but it makes sense, and it yeah. feels intuitive. Uh, this feels intuitive as somebody who, <laughs> as a character who is struggling to find their identity, and you have another uh important parental figure in your life pushing an identity on you that mm-hmm. you're like i guess that's my identity and then when you see like to see this scene this murder happen yeah it's just like I, like i can see her like she's kind of losing the boundaries between herself and Rumi because she doesn't know what is her decision anymore and what isn't yeah i think that's a good way to look at it it's, especially, it's a cool movie. Yeah, like, they show a shot of this no mask. Well, if do you know anything about no theater? No. Okay, it's like a very old style of theater in Japan, but basically... And by no, I mean it, <laughs> N-O-H. Not, oh, okay, you which do is mean what it, N-O-H. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Sorry, we I saw, I saw it. it spelled out in our plot. Yes, it is N-O-H <laughs> is how uh, it's spelled. I'm not like a super big expert on it either. And I actually had to look this up. Uh, so this is coming from someone else, not me. Um, but that no mask, apparently in no theater, they will have the same characters or the same actors use different masks to be different characters. So mm. that's like a very small, like, that here's tracks. a little shot here. To tell you, like, if you're not paying attention, you might just think, oh, kind of creepy mask. Like, masks are how people can, like, hide their face. But then it has this additional point where it's Rumi mm-hmm. who is playing another character in her head to do this act yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. That's so cool. I feel like there's I, so I like many that. little things. I feel like if we, if, uh, obviously we're not going to do this, but I'm sure film uh, analysts have broken down, like, all of the extra imagery and stuff to be like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, they added this detail. They added this detail. Which is just very cool to think about. They put so much mm-hmm. uh, extra effort into this. One thing I will say about this movie that I think I'm officially bummed out by, and actually, so this movie came out in '97, but on June 21st, 1996, The Hunchback of Notre Dame came out. Oh, did it? And I think that might have uh, uh, killed the trope that this movie kind of engages in. Which is, hmm. I, always, I remember seeing it first in It's a Wonderful Life. Mr. Potter is the evil banker, and his evil is depicted outwardly by having him be in a wheelchair. There is, the, like, the evil that is within is manifested on the outside by some sort of abnormality or physical deformity. It's why villains will often have scars. This movie, hmm. I think, has uh, a pretty good example of that trope that doesn't feel great, where uh, the stalker is just happens to be an ugly man. And yeah. I don't think being ugly makes you mean. And that's why I bring up Hunchback of Notre Dame, because I feel like that was the movie that was like, well, if you look like a monster, you must be a monster, right? Nope. Quasimodo's actually nice. Surprise. Yeah. And then we were all like, oh, right, we're monsters. But this movie's clearly already in production. I don't think it could react. Uh, it didn't feel great. Yeah, that is kind of a strange choice, especially because then there is absolutely no, like, 
mystery, which, I mean, they're not trying to hide yeah. that he is this creepy stalker, so there's no reason to do it. But honestly, it would be much more unsettling if he looked more like a normal guy, I think, in my right. opinion. Because we get plenty of those other people from the crowd. There's the ruffians who are, like, causing a ruckus and everything. And, like, mm-hmm. they're not, like, you know, handsome model dudes, but they just look like whatever, like, normal normal dudes. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the choice to make him like this, I think maybe it's a way to also convey how he might feel like more of an outsider because of the way he looks, because he obviously mm-hmm. doesn't interact with people much. So he is way more susceptible to the online indoctrination that Rumi does to, like, make him her puppet, kind of, and listen to what That's she true. says. But still, it doesn't change the fact that, like, yeah, that was a design choice to make him look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, I just a- feel bad, like, growing up, like, if I kind of look like in my, I think my eyes are kind of too far apart. And so, like, if you're a kid growing up and you see somebody who kind of looks like your weird face and the only thing, like, it, it's so, it, it's tough because, like, the very first thing we see is this ugly looking guy and the very first thing he does is actually kind of noble, but everybody's still, like, disgusted by him. Like, everybody's reacting well, it's to more him like they negatively. Just, like, he is trying to stop them from causing a ruckus, but he doesn't really know what to do for the social interaction to make mm-hmm. them stop. So he kind of, like, very awkwardly just goes over and sort of, like, looms over them. And they're just punks yeah. who are like, what the fuck are you doing, like, staring at us? Like, <laughs> you know, the only reason probably why they haven't punched him already is because he's so tall. So they're like, well, right. what's this guy's deal? What is he, what is he capable of? They don't know. It's it's played very sinister. Yeah, uh, even though he is, like, trying to stop them from causing a scene and, you know, interrupting mm-hmm. the show. Um, and, like, another person in the crowd randomly tries to kind of help out, and he gets immediately intimidated to just, like, walk it back. And was like, well, I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> anything else you wanted to say about Perfect Blue? Um, I guess not that I can really think of. I, it's not worth it going into, like, Darren Aronofsky ripping off a bunch of stuff for this for like black swan and everything i'd just be doubling down even more on obscure things uh yeah i don't think so i think we talked about a lot of really good stuff with it already i think yeah um i guess mikey as i guess the question i have is mikey you as someone who famously is not a fan of anime despite the fact that he likes avatar the last airbender guys the 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 cartoon show not not the uh I said Avatar The Last Airbender. I said the full title. Normally you have to yeah, give that I stipulation. Yeah, like the M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. I haven't seen it. I actually haven't seen it. Uh, never never do it. You'll, you're fine without it. Um, <laughs> but it. H- how did you feel watching this? Was it like kind of a hard barrier to uh, watch this at first? Or was yeah. it like so set apart <laughs> comparatively? Okay. <laughs> Anime like? is tough for me. Like... I've tried to articulate this specifically to you before, uh-huh, like, uh-huh. and I don't quite know how to do it because I can't quite put into words what it is. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the way de- the delivery of all these performances in anime is that just feels so bullet pointy and over explainy. Like people have this, I, I don't know if it's this anime trope to tend to like over explain or like narrate your actions as you're doing it. And I like, that's not quite right because I don't really do that. But like, there's something I mean, about it that just like every TV shows they're like talking about whatever moveset or skill they're doing or something. Where it's like, that, yeah. like a wrestling match where, yeah, they're going <laughs> to take the time for everybody to say and have their peace. Right. I just, every time I watch an anime, anything, I'm just like, I 
am not connecting to this. And it takes a while for me to connect to it. And even with something like Avatar The Last Airbender, the live action film. Uh-huh. Uh, not the live action film. The cartoon. <laughs> Even even though I love that overall story, I, there are still moments where like <laughs> they act like an anime that I'm just like you, <laughs> and I just happen to love enough around it. Also, this is another thing about anime. Every time anybody like uh, you, who are a friend of mine who loves anime, has like sat me down and explained an anime story, I'm like, that's the coolest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And then I sit down and watch one episode, and I'm like, I can't do this. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I'm the just TV like, shows were like Cowboy Bebop and the Ghost in the Shell, uh, like I know. complex series. Yeah, Listen, it's clearly a me thing because these yeah. are clearly good things that are beloved by a lot of people. Who love, and I just I can't. Which I also I don't want to make you feel like attacked or so. Everybody has preferences. You don't have to like everything I like. It's just it seemed like you did enjoy this movie. I don't think you'd just be like doing me a solid and like faking your way <laughs> through this just for that sake. Because it's an interesting discussion to talk about why you didn't like a thing as well. Mm-hmm. But so this this movie, you were able to either turn that off or eventually hit a point for you where you weren't thinking about that. I'm guessing. Yes, I I would say that like my experience with this movie overall was like, not again, not dissimilar to Avatar The Last Airbender. There were plenty of times when I was just like, why are you behaving this way? But the scales overall tipped into like, I liked it just fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, how about Mikey? We rate out of five severed thumbs what we thought about this movie. I would love to. So Mikey, and then that's, think? Huh? I, I did give it 2.6 thumbs. So that's two thumbs and six little knuckles. So we'll just do okay. a, cut off some of the extra knuckles and put them on the scale. Yeah, I like it just fine. Um, <laughs> I, I Again, I tend to uh, bristle at stories that are like, what is real? Like, I don't know, storyteller, just make a decision what's real and show it to me. Yeah. Uh, so that's tough. But I do think it did a really good job of getting into the mindset of somebody making this transition. And I think that might be my mark of a good movie is how much do I feel like the main character? Mm. And I did feel, you know, what is real? Who are these people? (laughs) Why, why are they treating me this way? I'm afraid. Like it kind of did it. I think by the end, you, since you get an explanation as well, it doesn't just like end the movie and they're like, oh, now it's up to you to do the rest of the work. Like <laughs> it's true. the midsection where everything's chaotic and then you do get the answers and the payoff. So I think, yeah, I can see how like, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that there is a lot of chaotic scenes that don't hang together. I mean, they're purposefully not hanging together. So it seems right. like it's purposeless uh, in a way until everything mm-hmm. kind of fits together. Yeah, all right, so... Yeah, what did you give it? I gave it a 3.5 out of 5. I like this movie a lot. I think it's really good, but, like, goddamn, some of the uncomfortable parts of this where, like, Mima's being leered at, the, like, onstage rape scene is just... It's hard to watch, especially for me. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. never good at watching these sorts of scenes in movies. I will purposely avoid movies that usually do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it always just feels way longer than it probably is because it makes me so uncomfortable. But I think they did it well mm. in the way it's utilized in this movie, which I feel like is very hard to do. Mm-hmm. And just the animation itself is very effective. I think the writing, the way they chose to pace things is good. And the music's really good. So, yeah, 3.5. I, I am just thinking about right now, like, 
they always say like if you can do anything besides rape in a story do that but if if it really needs to be rape and i was kind of thinking about like does this scene need to be rape and just in thinking about like if the point of that scene is to show how tough it is to get into acting, like it would read really hollow to just be like, man, you got to get up at 6 a.m. and go say lines. Like, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty good example of what would be tough about being an actor, which is a, a thing that this story hinges on. So I don't know that I want to say that, like, it could have only been rape, but it's like it it certainly makes the point you're trying to make that yeah. this would be a hard thing to take on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right, Mikey, do you have a question for me? I got a question for you. Okay. <laughs> What's your question, Mikey? One of the most charming moments of this movie is when our dear sweet friend Mima starts <laughs> plugging in her first computer <laughs> and taking her first little spin on the World Wide Web. <laughs> what was your first computer, and do you remember your first time on the internet? Um, I kind of do. I think our first computer wasn't hooked up to the internet for a bit. It might not have even been hooked up to the internet until we got our second dedicated home computer Mm. because the first one we got was like a freebie because my dad was a teacher and they were just getting rid of old ones. So it was super ancient. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't even remember if it had full color on the screen, but it had Tetris, Mikey. It had Tetris. (laughs) So Tetris was probably the first video game or I guess computer game I ever played. And I played the shit out of that because it was basically the only thing you could do on it. It was just the Tetris box. Uh-huh. <laughs> until like eventually then my family purposefully bought our next uh actual home computer that and had the internet at the time so we were able to connect to the internet uh, and then i remember just a lot of uh anime fan sites i remember thinking like mm. i'll save a bunch of pictures of magic knights ray earth and sailor moon and then make a fan site for it and people will want to uh-huh. look at that for some reason was it geo cities <laughs> or something i can't remember and i bet they did I'm sure they did. I can't even remember if it's still out there, maybe. Maybe there's a fan shrine for Magic Knights Ray Earth out there. I I will personally Venmo $10 (laughs) if anybody can get a hold of Roxy's Sailor Moon, did you say? I I think it was like Sailor Moon and Magic Knights Ray Earth. I think it was like... Okay, it's got to be Sailor Moon and Magic Knights Raiders. Uh, if you can get that website to me and your Venmo handle, you're getting ten dollars from your boy Mikey McCaller. <laughs> Some detective work would be involved. I'd be very impressed. Oh, I would too. Oh my god. So, what about you, Mikey? What was your first at-home computer like? So, we definitely had some kind of computer for a long time that I always knew had some kind of games, but like I don't know. I I never cared because we also had. Nintendo and Super Nintendo, and that was where all my video game time was going. Mm -hmm. But we had an uninternet connected computer for a while. And then I remember going to my friend Kenny's house, and he had the internet, and you could use that internet to look up rumors about which Beanie Babies were going to be retired. Oh my god. Oh, darling, we were in the money then. Just pigs and shit reading rumors. (laughs) Legs the Frog's been out for a long time. I'll bet that bastard's going to get retired. (laughs) So that was very cool. And then eventually our family did get some kind of computer that was hooked up to um, when we had a dial-up modem. And we had AOL, which had really good parental controls. And that was the only reason my parents were comfortable letting us use the computer on our own. What they didn't know, what they did not know. Oh, was that the website unzipped.com was okay for some reason. I'm assuming that's a porn site. (laughs) 
it was a, a big time porn site. <laughs> okay. Uh, and somehow it was just like everybody knew. They were like, oh, yeah, you've got the parental controls on. You can still go to unzipped.com. I can remember my older friend came over and he just like, let me show you. <laughs> like unzipped.com. And it worked. And I saw pubic hair of a lady and I was. Is it the just... first porn you ever saw, Mikey, I guess, on this? Uh, no, the, the first boobs I ever saw were uh, Species on HBO. <laughs> oh, Oh my god. My grandparents were in Texas for the winter and they flew me down and they went to bed and I was like, hey man, I can just stay up and watch TV. And they're like, I guess. And they had HBO and uh that was when I was like shocked. I was like, I didn't know they were allowed to put boobies on television. Yeah. But they were. But I had not yet seen pubic hair. And when I saw it on unzip.com, oh, we were pigs and shit. Oh, we were excited to be. Oh, look at it. Uh pubic hair. Oh boy. <laughs> Would you say that's more or less exciting than knowing about Beanie Baby news and the millions you were going to make off of them? Honest to Christ, Roxy. (laughs) There was maybe a year or two between those two times. Uh And at the time, they were both probably my peak excitement. (laughs) (laughs) I was like about as as excited as a thing as I could be. (sighs) All right, Mikey. So last week we made a bet. Mm Mm-hmm. So the bet was number of times word pop is said in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. So, Mikey, you said. I said 15. And I said 25. The answer is. 24. What? Oh, my God. You came very close, Roxy. Oh, shit. One away. That's insane. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, I did find a, a translation of this movie and did a control F on the word pop. Pop, 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 pop. Came up a lot. So, Roxy, you win. My one. I can't believe how close I was. I guess swing big every time is what I've learned. That's what Dracula has taught me. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. Dracula taught me to uh, follow your love across the seas of time. I guess that's. I mean, he also taught me that, but that didn't help me win a bet now, did (laughs) it? But no, you're right. Uh, Go big on the bets for our podcast is the right lesson. (laughs) Just as important, okay? (laughs) To me. (laughs) (laughs) So, Roxy, you win that bet. That means the total bet scores are Roxy with 37, Mikey with 28, Ty with 4. Speaking of ties, I guess, Demon Bot's coming over here wearing one for some reason? Oh, he looks very professional. I wonder if he's going to ask me one of our Pop Idol managers, Mikey. He looks very professional there. Mikey and Roxy, if you must know, I have a job interview. The upkeep on the scary basement isn't cheap, you know. Though the interview is to be a pop idol manager. Anyway, for next week, you must watch the 2008 Swedish film Let the Right One In. Okay, so this is the original one, the one from 2008. Yes, the original Let the Right One In. I am excited to watch it. I have not seen this one, and I have not seen the sequel either. So, Or not sequel, sorry. the They made like an American remake <laughs> or something. The remake, yeah. Uh, that I heard was not good. So I'm glad we are watching the original Swedish one. I have seen this movie. This is one of the first like arty movies that I was oh, like, oh, this is arty cool. movie. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Roxy, we got to make a bet for next week, obviously. Yeah, let's do it. You were taught to swing big by Dracula. And, I was. And uh, we got to put that to use. What would you say? Let the right one in. Obviously, a vampire film. It's got hints of vampiredom. Mm-hmm. What, what time stamp do you think we will first see blood 
in the movie Let the Right One In. Okay, I think this is a long movie, so I'm going to swing big in the way that I'm going to guess relatively early, you know, instead of, mm. like, safe mid-tier guess. So I'm going to guess 14 minutes in. I'm going to say pretty early we're going to see okay. some bloodshed. Okay. I will say 25 minutes in. Okay. Because it, uh, it feels like a crossing the threshold moment. We mm. have to see blood and then the story has begun. Yeah, I also feel like this movie could do the thing that many of these movies do where the title card will have blood and then it'll be like <laughs> the first 30 seconds of the movie. I do hope that this movie's title credits are in like dripping blood font that you used <laughs> to like put your reports on <laughs> if you wanted to get a C minus automatically from your teacher. <laughs> it was very funny to put your- Turn in a report with blood. In the dripping- What is this? It was just the dripping blood font. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like chiller or something. Yeah, if you- It was chiller. Yes, it was totally chiller. If you wanted to- uh, uh, I guess mess with your teacher. The same friend who showed me unzip.com did this where we had to turn in our report on uh, uh, like Old Yeller or whatever. And he typed it out and then changed it to chiller. So it was just dripping blood font. And then the teacher had to read it in that font. And then he was like, cool prank. Now I got like a D minus or something because the teacher couldn't read it. Listen, that friend of mine, coolest guy I ever knew. I guess so. Seems like a very cool guy move. To this day, okay, so he maintained his cool from elementary school onwards. To this seems. day. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty cool dude, Mikey. All yeah. right, so we've talked about a lot of things making us happy. A lot of things, or not enough things about making us happy. We talked about a lot of uh, spooky, scary things in terms of uh, <laughs> <laughs> hedging your bets on your career as an actress. Sounds scary <laughs> to me. So let's talk about stuff that makes us happy. So, Mikey, what is making you happy this week? We did reference it a little bit earlier in the podcast, but watching the movie Perfect Blue and learning about pop idols did remind me of one of my very favorite professional wrestling moments of all time, Mm -hmm. uh, featuring a wrestler named Maki Ito, who is a pop idol, a failed pop idol, who then became a wrestler. That is her whole storyline. And she's from Japan. And so she came over to America, one of my favorite... One of my favorite, my, the only wrestling organization I like, AEW. And uh, she was in a five-person match. And so she was the last entrant to come out. And all of the other women were in the ring already fighting. Okay. And when she came out, her music hit. And she did a performance, <laughs> a pop idol performance of her song while there was brawling going Oh, my on God. That is amazing. It's, very funny. I think you you sent a clip of this, right? We can probably include it I in did, the show yes. notes, I'm sure. Yeah, that'll be in the show notes. You got you gotta watch it. it <laughs> pro wrestling's fun. Anything can happen. It sounds pretty <sighs> fun, especially the fact that they can have characters like that too. And now that they're doing these crossover events, it sounds very fun. Yes, it rules. Uh Roxy, what's making you happy? So I watched the movie Air Force One with my family. And for Hell some yeah, reason, dude. We had like an absolutely out of control fun time. I think maybe we were a little drunk. Maybe we were just a little bit like, yeah, sure. Let's give this movie 110%. Like more than opening (laughs) night when this movie came out. Let's just yell about things. I'm going to salute Harrison Ford, my president dad of the United States. Uh (laughs) And yell about Gary Oldman and his accent and being a really annoying character who is the main villain. Uh, it, it's also very similar to Die Hard, but, like, imagine Die Hard 
with a villain who is not interesting and is just, yes, I'm a zealot for my cause. I'm not trying to do a fun thing where I'm misdirecting you and I'm really here to get money Mm -hmm. with this cool, like, back and forth kind of thing when they don't know who each other are. But anyway, needless to say, why am I talking about Die Hard when I'm trying to talk about Air Force One? (laughs) It was just very fun. It was one of the things that, like, capped off the kind of family festivities and stuff when I was hanging out with them. And then right after that, we tried to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was 3 a.m., and everybody fell asleep. Sure. Because uh, Air Force One tired us out. We were so excited by it, and so filled with patriotic pride, apparently. Yeah. That President Dad I, Harrison Ford survived <laughs> and won the day. I really liked I really liked the way you put that, that like we were giving this movie 100%. And Roxy, I just want to say, I think that might be how I watch all movies. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's good. That's good. <laughs> when every, every time you're like, wait a minute, you like Halloween kills? That fucking trash. I'm like, yeah, dude, Michael Myers is in there. He was stabbing everybody. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a good way to describe how Have I'm you doing this. I'm giving them all 100%. To do that in a way, though, where like everybody in the room is, so then it dominoes, and then it's more like you're mm. giving 200%. I guess that that is the way to describe yeah, yeah. like how heightened it felt, because everybody... All, like, five of us were, like, yelling. (laughs) (laughs) Combo multipliers is what you're describing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That rules. That's so fun. All right, Mikey, it is now time for Haunted Plugs. First of all, make sure you follow the Scary Basement Twitter, which is at scary underscore basement, and on Instagram, at scarybasementpod. And Mikey, where can people find you on the internet? I am on Twitter, at secretblimp. And you can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash secretblimp. I am also on Twitter as Red Mage Roxy, and I am also on Twitch as Red Mage Roxy, where I stream three days a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. Also, make sure you give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And make sure to leave us a review. You know that helps us out. One other way you can help us out is by checking out the Patreon for our podcast network, Super NPC. Sign up at patreon.com slash supernpcradio, and there you can get bonus episodes of Scary Basement covering horror video games, as well as the years and years of content from the rest of the video game-loving folks over at Super NPC Radio. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, and as always, do not sign any contracts offered to you by Demon Robot. See you next week. Mm-hmm.